Warning, this episode contains graphic description of sexual assault and may be triggering or disturbing. Please help me forgive this person. What am I supposed to do with this? Over and over and over again. And I vowed in that moment that I would not leave that parking spot until I had forgiven him because I knew, I just knew because of how I was raised, like his violation of me had nothing to do with me. (laughs) Everything to do with him and his pain. I was just a vessel for that pain to be poured into. This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. You're listening to Beyond the Picket Fence, where you're invited to take a break from keeping it together. Let's get real. This week, we meet Cherie Trask, the author of Surviving Silence. After being a ghostwriter for years, she finally published her very own story, and oh my goodness, it's an important one. Cherie is a survivor of rape. In honor of her and her new book, this story is the first of a three-episode series of survivors speaking out. When the unimaginable happens, how can we fight back? The answer to that is very personal and different for each individual. This is Cherie's experience. I am Cherie Trask. I am a ghostwriter. I'm also a book writing coach and transformational nonfiction. So that's kind of the personal development world. I call it the woo-woo section of the bookstore where you're going to find spirituality and all this stuff. And I've been doing this work for, gosh, about 11 years now. And I absolutely love it. My whole reason for doing this work is really to empower more voices to speak up and allow themselves to be heard fully, unapologetically, and be kind of the guide, if you will, to bringing courageous storytelling to life. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That aligns with my mission. So I'm so excited. I really value vulnerability. And as humans, we walk around and we all look like we're doing fine, right? But the things people have been through are just insane. To set the stage, we go back. Cherie grew up in a single parent home. Her biological father was an addict. So when Cherie's incredible mother was surprised with a pregnancy at 21 years young, she set the boundary. If he couldn't get clean, it wasn't going to work out. The line in the sand was really for her when he came home drunk one night while she was pregnant and got aggressive, kicked her in the belly, and she was like, you're out, no more. And that was it. I never met my biological father. It was an interesting upbringing in that I was raised by my mom solely, but because she worked so much, I was super close to my grandmother. And so I spent a ton of time with her. And we had always felt like we were one in the same. We were so much alike. And she was just such a wise woman and taught me so much. And then I got to go home and be with my mom, who was incredible also. But again, like it's hard growing up in a single parent home where you have somebody who is trying to provide and doing the best they can. Mind you, she's in her early 20s. And I look at that now and I'm in my 40s and I think, I could never have done that in my 20s. I would have lost my mind, right? (laughs) She would have lost her mind? I just wanted to take a second for young mothers. When she spoke of how her mother had her so young, I was thinking like, okay, 16, 17-ish. Then I realized her mother was 21. That is how old I was when I had my first daughter. How interesting from her perspective, this is so young. I think that's a pretty normal age among my culture. While I'm not a single parent, 
I do forget to honor how young I was when I became a mother. Hindsight, I was just a baby myself. Thank you, Cherie, for saying this because I honestly never considered this. So next time you feel like you're losing your mind, remember, even Cherie said she would have lost her mind. And honestly, anyone mothering at any age has my permission to lose your mind, okay? <laughs> it's okay. All right, enough of that. This is not a mothering episode. Although I wish I could take mothering lessons from Cherie's mom. She sounds amazing. And the apple didn't fall far from the tree. So that was kind of the start of my whole beginning. And I developed this story that I had to be strong and take care of myself because it was ingrained in me at such a young age that, you know, you don't need anybody. You can do it on your own. You can do anything. All of these things, which is lovely in theory, but when it comes to a child growing up in that environment, I can reflect back now and think like, I know that they were doing the best they could. And I'm so grateful. And I had an amazing upbringing because of that. And it really created the story for me that I had to do things on my own. I couldn't ask for help that if something were to get done, it needed to be me to do it. And it really created a lot of stress in my life because I had a really hard time not only asking for help, but receiving it when it came to me. How can we balance these things? Yes, we want to be strong and do things ourselves, but sometimes we must become the receiver. There are seasons where we get to be the giver, but there's something about receiving help that connects us on a deeper human level. Learning to let people help me has been some of the most beautiful experiences of my life. Those lessons also gave me greater drive to be a helper in others' lives where I can. Can we humble ourselves to let others in and help us? That is vulnerability. That is a gift and where deep connections are formed. We need each other. So fast forward to when Cherie was about 10, her mom got married. And for the next seven years, there was a man in Cherie's life, the only a man she has ever called dad and they grew to be super close, but. When they got divorced, he was out of my life. He never talked to me again. And I didn't understand that, right? Oh, you know, man. again, being a kid, right? So the story kept evolving. And yes, there was proof that it was quote unquote true that I had this enormous abandonment wound. And I just felt like people left me. In particular, male figures that were supposed to love me left me. So what did that say about me? And I internalized this belief that I wasn't good enough or I wasn't worthy of being loved. And again, going back to, I was supposed to do everything on my own. When she graduated high school, she moved from her tiny town in Washington to San Diego to be on her own and to chase her dreams of working in TV and film. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go do it. I'm going to realize my dreams and do whatever I need to do on my own. And a year after I was here. I was sexually assaulted by somebody that I kind of knew. It was somebody who had been asking me out over and over again. And I was just like, God, I want this guy to stop asking me out because it's annoying. He was much older than me. I was 19. He was 27. And I was like, dude, like not interested at all. But he would not let up. And so finally, I said, okay, if I agree to go out with you, can you promise me you will never ask me out again? And he's like, yeah, 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 totally. Is anyone else super peeved right now? No means no. Why can't people just get that through their heads? The fact that Cherie felt like to get this guy to back off, she had to just go on the stupid date. If you're peeved now, just freaking wait. 
So ended up going out with a group of people making it for me felt easier and more comfortable. And I didn't really talk too much to him. And I was like, Oh, I guess he's not that bad of a guy. So when he finally said, Okay, let me take you out now. I was like, fine. He asked me to meet me at his house and we were going to drive to a movie. Number one, let me just say right now, I didn't know any better at 19. But if anybody is dating right now, and somebody asks you to meet them at their house, I don't care how old you are, the answer is no. <laughs> meet in a public place, always. This was lesson number one for me. I met him at his house. And as I got to the front door, he opens it, he says, Oh, come on in. And his living room was right there. And he's like, why don't you come back to my bedroom, grab a jacket because it gets cold in the movie theater. And I was like, oh, no, 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 you can grab one for me. I'll just wait right here. And he's like, it's not a big deal. Just come grab one. It doesn't matter. And everything in my body was like, you shouldn't do that. But also this guy's already annoying me. I just want to get out of the house. So I started to walk back to his bedroom. And again, I'd never been in his house before, right? So I walked back to his bedroom and... I'm petite. I'm 5'2". I'm a small person, just in nature. And he was probably 200 pounds of muscle. And as soon as I stepped into the doorway, he grabbed me and he went to kiss me. And at first I was like, I don't want to kiss you, but ah! and that kiss quickly turned really aggressive. And he threw me on the bed and I was like, no, 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 no. And I just kept saying, no, 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 no. And he pulled down my pants, he ripped open my shirt. And he's like, you know, you're gonna like this. And I said, I don't want you to do this. No, 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 no. And he was on top of me and I could not get him off everything. And he was like pushing, pushing, pushing to get him off. And I could feel the tears coming down my face as you know, he penetrated me and I blacked out, I completely lost all sense of time. And I remember laying there and I was praying. I was like, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. And when he was done, he stood up, he pulled up his pants and he said, see, baby, I told you you'd like it. Grab a jacket. I'll meet you outside. That moment, as you can imagine, was incredibly defining in a million different ways. But I remember laying there and being like, this did not just happen. This is not my story. This is not my life. No. <laughs> And as I slid off his bed, there was a adjacent bathroom. And I remember crawling into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I just had mascara streaked on my face. My eyes were bloodshot. And I felt like I was staring at an empty shell. I was like, who are you? Who is this person? Like, this isn't me. And I pulled on my pants. I covered my chest. I walked out of his house. I didn't say a word. And I went into my car and I just sobbed. And it was October 15th. 2000. And it doesn't really rain much here in San Diego, but it was raining. And I remember turning on my car and just the rain beating down on the windshield. And it just every emotion that could happen consumed me. And again, I'm a spiritual person, I wouldn't consider myself religious, but I was praying. And all I kept saying was like, please help me forgive this person so I can be free. Please help me forgive this person. What am I supposed to do with this over and over and over again? And I vowed in that moment that I would not leave that parking spot until I had forgiven him because I knew, I just knew because of how I was raised, like his violation of me had nothing to do with me, everything to do with him and his pain. I was just a vessel for that pain to be poured into. So I sat there and prayed and waited and I was talking to my grandmother who had passed away at that point and 
just like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I can honestly say that, and I know this is not the case for a lot of people who are violated in this way. I did forgive him that night and I did not leave until I forgave him. And when I finally drove off, I, you know, ugly cried all the way home. And I told myself, there is a reason that this happened. And as crazy as that sounds, like I was always raised, my grandmother always told me as a kid when I would complain about something, she's like, Sheree, find the four, meaning what is the purpose of this? Find the four. What is this for? Wow. Powerful. So I committed to finding the four and doing something with that experience. And I wish I could say that like, oh, you know, I forgave him and everything was great and I moved on and my life was perfect, but it could not be further from the truth. And it was really interesting because, you know, you never think that something like that is going to happen to you. And so if you had ever had conversations, I know I had had conversations with my girlfriends and even in high school, like if that ever happened, what would you do? And I was like, oh my God, I would tell somebody right away. I would make sure he went to jail, all these things. And then it happens and you go, holy shit, this is actually my life. Like, this is now my story. And I don't want anyone to know, Mm -hmm. not because for me, like I wasn't ashamed. I didn't feel guilty. I didn't feel like the typical things that so many people say that they feel understandably. For me, it was like, I don't want people to see me as different. I just want to go on with my life. So it was not long afterwards. It was only a few weeks. I was at work and I felt really sick. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like everything inside of me is like screaming to get out. I was hurled over in pain and I had worked a 12 hour shift. And as soon as I closed the salon, I was like, I need to go to urgent care. Come to find out after waiting in the waiting room for an hour and going in, getting tests, all the things, the nurse came in and she brought the doctor with her. And she's like, so we have your results. The good news is you're healthy. And I don't know if this is good news or not, but the other news is that you're pregnant. Oh my gosh. Everything in my body was like, and again, like I say this with compassion for the 19 year old girl that I was at that time, but my instinct just kicked in and I was like, get it out of me. And they were like, excuse me. And I was like, get it out of me. They didn't know what happened. They didn't know any of that. I hadn't had sex with anybody else. I asked her if she was a virgin when that happened. Thankfully, she was not. But she wasn't sexually active at that time. The pregnancy couldn't have been anyone else's. She knew exactly whose it was. But before we go on with the story, whether you're a virgin or not, if you have a vagina, you know very well that having sex when you're not in the mood can hurt. So I had to ask, was it painful? So it's really interesting. There's something called disassociative amnesia, which I didn't know it at the time. But when I think back to that night, there are things I remember clear as day. Like I remember cologne. I remember his aftershave. I remember my nails digging into his back. I remember his sweat. I remember like his breath on my neck. I remember those things, but the actual physical sensation. I do not remember any of that. And I've actually lost years prior to and after the assault that Mm -hmm. I may never get back. But I also am so grateful and thank my body all the time for keeping me safe and protecting me because maybe there's a reason I'm not supposed to have those memories. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe I've remembered enough and that's all that I need. Oh my gosh. I just love you so much already. 
Okay, back on track. She just found out she was pregnant, and remember, she hadn't told anyone yet. So when I found out that I was pregnant, my best friend from childhood had recently moved to San Diego to live with me. And so I called her and I was like, I need you to come to the hospital. I just found out I'm pregnant. And immediately she was there. I didn't tell her that I had been raped. I didn't tell her anything. And this is where there's like such an interesting kind of, I guess, it's an interesting thought process because again, like I didn't feel the guilt or shame that so many survivors feel. I'm thankful for that. But also I completely understand where that comes from. But in the same token, I chose to remain silent and not share with anybody for three and a half years. I didn't tell a soul. I told my mom that I was pregnant because my mom was and still is my best friend. I called her and I just said, I had sex and I'm pregnant. And she's like, I'm coming. I'm coming. So she came. In addition to being pregnant at 19 by way of rape, I found out that it was ectopic. So what that meant was it was in my fallopian tube. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't have kept it, which I didn't want to. I didn't want the memory of it. I know that's not everybody's story and that's okay. I did attempt to terminate the pregnancy. And that's when, you know, they were like, we know that you're pregnant, but we don't see it. And I was like, I don't know what that means. That's confusing, but take it out. So they went through the procedure. And then when I got the blood results back, I got a call from the nurse and she's like, Sheree, we need you to come in immediately. This is really important. And, you know, typical 19 year old, I was like, nah, I really want to, I don't feel good. Can I come in like next week? And she's like, no, (laughs) I need you to come in now. And I was like, so inconvenient, right? Like it's such a, it's so stupid. It's such a teenager response and probably partially a trauma response too. So I was like, can you just tell me over the phone what the big deal is? And she's like, it's a topic. If you don't come in, you could die. Two things. Number one, I had no idea what ectopic meant. And number two, you don't tell a 19-year-old girl that over the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when she's not listening. (laughs) Right, right, right. I was like, you just told me that I could die. Oh my God, now I'm freaking out. (laughs) So of course, she promptly makes her way back to the doctor with her best friend. And Cherie was given two options. You can either have surgery, possibly damaging the fallopian tube, possibly making it more difficult for you to have children later, or you can go through a series of what they called were chemo injections. I think it was something called methotrexate. I don't know exactly, but they referred to it as chemo injections for four months. So I opted for that because I didn't know if I wanted to have kids or not. And I wanted to preserve my fallopian tube. So for four months, I went on a weekly basis and got injections into my ass and that allowed the pregnancy to pass through safely, not damaging anything. And from the moment that the injections kind of ceased, the next nine years were spent in the hospital for me. I was sick for no joke, nine years. And we can go into that too, as far as like, what does that look like now? Because it still exists now. But I truly believe if you've ever heard of the book or read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, it's an incredible book on trauma. And it talks about how we store trauma. And because I wasn't speaking about it, I look at it like the trauma had to come out somehow. And for me, it manifested in physical symptoms. So I was constantly hospitalized for things that the doctors were like, this literally makes no sense. 
or an otherwise healthy individual? Why do you have, you know, I had meningitis, ruptured ovarian cysts. I was hospitalized for a kidney infection for a week to the point where the doctor has called my mom and was like, we don't know if she's going to make it. We need you to come. And like, this was for nine years. So my 20s were spent much differently than most people my age. I still graduated college with honors and I was like, I will do something with this. Like so determined, also so stubborn, (laughs) which kind of, you know, it, it really did in many ways. Like my story didn't define me, but it became a huge part of me to this day. And I really do see it as such a blessing because it has allowed me to really feel into my purpose and work in this world and why I do what I do and support the clients that I support, I would never have thought that this would be my path at all. So there's a lot of good that comes from these experiences. I think, you know, one of the hardest things in my experience and speaking to a lot of survivors too, is that it can be really easy to stay stuck in the experience for a lot of reasons, you know, some as it's like, I don't know who I am without this story. And that scares me. I don't want to do the work to get to know this new version of me. There are so many things. And what I've told every survivor that I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to is really about like, the importance of mourning your old self, because a lot of people forget there was somebody that existed before all of this occurred. And that person is just as beautiful and valuable and worthy as the person that exists now after it. So how do you honor that old person, that old self, and take those pieces that still feel true for you into this new version of yourself as a way to evolve and flourish and thrive in this current experience moving forward? Because we don't have to allow these things to define us. Of course, they will always stay with us. But if we can find even a silver lining in the experience, then to me, I've chosen to see that as an enormous blessing. And I'm grateful every day that it happened. Not to say like, I wish everybody would have this experience because I don't. But for me, I know that it was exactly what was supposed to happen for me to get to the place I'm at now. And I wouldn't change that for the world. So what does it look like to honor the old self and create the new version? We're about to find out after this. You know, it can be so frustrating. Kids, how is it possible to love something so much and feel so at our wits end at the exact same time? It can be especially difficult to deal with their big feelings when we're trying to handle our own. And guess what? Even the best moms lose it sometimes. But you don't have to lose it if you don't want to. I just took a workshop called How to Stop Yelling at Your Kids, and it's only $29. And because it helped me so much, I scored you a code so you can get $10 off. So for only $19, you'll learn why you're yelling, how to yell less, and because nobody's perfect, find grace for yourself when you don't handle things exactly the way you would like to. Hear that? No more mom guilt. That's priceless if you ask me. Go to enlighteningmotherhood.com slash stop yelling and use code BEYOND at checkout. Of course, I don't expect you to remember that. So for your convenience, the link and the info is in the show notes. You're welcome. Now back to Cherie. She now has survived rape, a tubal pregnancy, but her body was keeping score and she was sick. It was three and a half years later when she decided to tell someone. 
Do you remember the first person that you told and why? Yeah. So I had met somebody out and this was our second date, second date, third date. I don't know. Anyways. It was a date, not the first. Yeah. <laughs> no, not the first. And I had him come over to my place at the time I was living in Coronado, which is outside of San Diego. And we were just sitting on the couch. We we're having a glass of wine and we we're laughing and da 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 da, you know. And all of a sudden, it was like something came over me and we weren't on the topic of it at all because why would we be? And all of a sudden, I was just like, I was raped. Whoa. And everything in my body was like, you said that out loud. You can't take that back. <laughs> and I had this moment of like panic. And he just looked at me and I was like, I don't know what I want him to say right now. <laughs> and I remember him just looking at me and he held me and was like, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And Aww. that's it. And I realized that moment, like that's all that I needed. And, you know, we dated for 11 years and he is a lovely man, but that was the first time that I really felt safe. And I can't tell you how long, just like safe to feel in a moat and be vulnerable and be fully me. And it was then that I knew, obviously, number one, like there's no turning back. I've already said it out loud. But that's when I committed to speaking about it and being open about it. Cherie was 24. So that was a long time ago now. And she's been speaking openly about it ever since. In 2018, I was invited to be a headline speaker in London. And the event was all about female entrepreneurship. And when they contacted me, I was like, you know, yes, I'm an entrepreneur, but like to talk about it, boring. And they were like, oh, no, we don't actually want you to talk about entrepreneurship. We want you to talk about resilience and overcoming and all of these things. We want you to tell your story. And I was like, easy, done. And I cannot tell you how many women, I think there was 150 women at the event. I can't tell you how many people afterwards were lined up. Not because, oh, there was such a great talk, blah, blah, blah. Because it had happened to them. Some of them had never told anybody. And I was the first person they were sharing their stories with. And for me, that is exactly why I chose to speak. Because it's not about me. I've had my experience. It's about what do I do with this to support other people so they can have a better experience moving forward with everything that they've been through. I remember, you know, my mom, she's my biggest cheerleader. And I remember her saying when I was first speaking openly about this, why would you share something so vulnerable? That's like a lot, Cherie. People don't want to hear that. And I was like, I appreciate that. Thank you. Is there a reason this is triggering you? And she's like, well, yeah, I mean, I was raped at 19. And I was like, I didn't know that. Let's talk about that. Because the problem isn't that I'm speaking. It's that there's something still being held onto within your own body, within your own spirit that this is uncomfortable with. For us, that was a really beautiful, just connecting, healing moment to be able to talk through that. And I think that happens a lot. Wow, We're so afraid of what people are going to think, you know? It's like, but does it matter? I don't care. (laughs) I just don't care what people think. If people want to judge something that we've been through, all of us, right? Regardless of what it is, Big, small, doesn't matter. Your experience is your experience and you get to have your experience, whatever that looks like for you. We have this thing where we almost want to have like this pain hierarchy. And it's like, no, 
one is not better or worse. Everybody's going to handle their own experience differently. And each gets to be honored and valued and accepted. And if there are people in your circle that for whatever reason can't handle it, don't want to handle it, don't believe you, all of the things that come up, that's their experience. However you need to get there. Don't allow these things to dictate your experience and how you move through the world because you are still whole. You are still complete. You can still have an amazing, incredible life regardless of what has happened. I'm sure you're now thinking of a person you know who has experienced assault in some way, shape, or form. Your story, a loved one, a friend, a stranger. When we hear these things, our instinct is to fix, fix, fix. Unfortunately, that's not always helpful. So when our friends want to hold on to these things, keep it to themselves, or they even think it's their fault, what should we do? In my experience, the best thing that you can do for a friend is number one, to ask them, what do you need from me? And they may say something like, I don't know. And you can say something to the effect of, well, why don't we figure that out together? Does it feel good for me to give you positive reinforcement? Does it feel good for you for me to just listen? Do you want to talk through scenarios? What's going to feel best for you? And just be quiet. So often when people come to us to share their stories, we want to fix it. And it's like, we're not meant to fix it. We're just meant to hold space. If we have space available to hold the container of safety, to be somebody that can be supportive and loving and compassionate and kind. There's nothing that you can do or say that fixes or changes what happened. This is what Beyond the Picket Fence is. When you listen to my show or join the Facebook community, it is my hopes that you feel seen, that you know there is space for you. We are a people that can be supportive, loving, and compassionate. That is the essence of this project. And I pray you feel that and fold you with each episode. Ah, this is so good. And Sheree just keeps it going. My encouragement is always to allow them to have the space to figure out what it is they need. And that might take time, but to encourage them to be uncomfortable, to encourage them to be with it. What we don't want to happen is to continue talking through it so much that it becomes the repetitive internal dialogue that is plain, even when they're just in a day-to-day you know, activities and whatever, that's the record play because mm-hmm. that gets stored in the subconscious. And then everything around you starts to reflect the thought patterns that you're having. And then you don't understand why these things are happening, but everything is connected. When I started telling people what didn't support me were the people that were like, oh, sorry that happened to you. So I was like, I don't want your pity. There's something to be said about, I'm really sorry that you had to experience that. And I'm sorry that happened to you. It's minor. But if you're somebody who I would consider like an aware human being as the recipient, you're going to feel the difference in that communication. So just being really thoughtful and mindful of your wording and asking her or him to tell you what they need. And if they need or say that they want to never talk about it again, that's okay too? It's their experience, right? Yeah. So 
like you might want to talk about it because it hurts your heart that they had to go through something so traumatic and you want to help them, but it's not for you to fix or solve. So all you can say is like, don't say I understand. I can understand is different. I can understand how this might feel really uncomfortable to talk about. When you're ready, if that time comes, just know that I'm here to listen without judgment. Also, something I think is really important too is to ask if you can provide feedback because Mm -hmm. a lot of people just interject the feedback, right? So instead of saying, oh, I think that you should talk to somebody. Do you mind if I just offer some insight? I don't really want to hear it right now. Okay, I'm here when you're ready. That's huge. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for somebody who cares so much about you somebody, you know, because you really want to help, but they've got to want that help and they've got to be open to receiving that help. Otherwise it doesn't go where it needs to go. Okay. Other questions that popped into my mind first, how long again, did it take you to become intimate with someone again after that? And did it affect that for you? No, it actually, it didn't affect that for me. I don't know the first person I've been asked this before. I don't know the first person afterwards. I don't recall. There's like this span of time. That's Mm -mm. part of the years that you, your body's protecting you from. Yeah. I don't remember ever having an adverse reaction other than to say like when I was intimate and this lasted into my thirties, when I was intimate with whoever my partner was with at the time, I was always very much like, I need to give, I need to give, I need to give. I could not receive. Mm. So for me, there was this block of like, self-protection. I don't want to get too attached. I don't want to become too close. And so I settled for less than I deeply desired in many ways. And intimacy was one of them. And that wasn't until my late thirties that I was like, F that. Like I get to have all the things too. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Otherwise they win, right? Like if they're going to steal that joy and pleasure, then they win. We don't want them to win. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So What does your life look like now? Yeah, I mean, I am in a beautiful relationship with somebody that can hold all of my pieces. As I say, I tend to be quite a dynamic person when it comes to my mind is always wondering in a million different ways. And I am a very deep thinker. So I definitely need time to myself to just be with myself. I still go through moments of frustration because to this day, I still struggle with my health. And it's just, it's a weird thing because I was always so healthy. And I do all the things that, you know, they say to do. I exercise and eat well and positive mindset and all the things that I struggle big time with my health and it goes in waves. So right now, full transparency, I'm in a low spot with my health right now, trying to figure that out. I think the frustrating thing, and this is actually really common with survivors, is that their health is effective, mainly because, you know, as I said, the trauma that gets stuck in the body, it creates a myriad of symptoms that people don't see as connected. So like lab work might look normal, but you feel like crap and you know that something's wrong. But if you're somebody who is not open to looking outside of the Western medicine world, which can be very great, right? But like, if it's not providing solutions, then you're not somebody who's open to looking outside of that. You might be in this place for a much longer time than you need to be. So for me, I've gone down the rabbit hole with everything that I can possibly think to even consider. And I still continue to dive into those things because I'm committed to healing and I don't know what that looks like. 
but it's one of those things that it can be really frustrating, you know, because you could be thinking, I, I've already healed that. I've already done that. I've done the work. Like I forgave the person I did, did it. And you still don't feel well. And I think that these are the times, and this is a reminder to myself also, these are the times that we get to have a deeper level of compassion for ourselves and empathy for ourselves and allow ourselves the space needed to do whatever is necessary for us, even if that's rest, which I know for a lot of people, myself included, that can feel really, really challenging to do because it's like, oh, I'm being lazy or I'm being, no, you're being human and you're having a human experience and you don't feel well. And sometimes you need to take a step back. You know, we're so inundated with social media and emails and pings and dings on our phones all the time. It's like our nervous systems are on high alert constantly. So what needs to happen for us to settle down enough to really tune in and listen to ourselves and our inner knowing, which we all have, and ask ourselves the question, you know, what do you need right now? What would feel good right now? And then honor those things. It might feel very counterproductive in the moment. Like, I just need to take three days off and you have a big project. You're like, girl, I don't have time for that. Make time. <laughs> Make time. I did it last week. You know, we were supposed to have a call and I was like, I can't. I, I can't. I had to tell a new client, like, I need some time really hard for me to do. And I can honestly say it was the first time I've ever done it. I was like, hi, hi, girl. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't have a choice because I I was just debilitated in bed. It happens. Yeah. I think that it's something I'm learning too, especially through all these interviews is it kind of always comes to the same. We've got to listen to that voice Mm -hmm. inside of us for religious people, Holy Ghost for Mm -hmm. non-religious people, the universe or your intuition, whatever it is, we all have it and it's inside of us and it can lead us to what we need to if we would just listen to it. I love that you just said that. Yeah. I'm learning to listen. It's so hard. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I think something too to add to that that's so interesting is that so often people think like you go through an experience, whatever it is, and like, okay, we'll just get over that and we'll move on. It's like, well, number one, we don't get over things unless we move through them because Mm -hmm. I really do believe you you have to feel it to heal it because otherwise it's going to come back in different ways. And this is just me being me because I have a ridiculous seekers mentality and I'm always questioning why, 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 why with everything. I just want to understand. And so does healing ever actually end? I think that we're always healing Mm -hmm. some capacity if we're somebody who like really truly wants to evolve and grow we're always going to have these moments where we're like oh man I thought that I already did that Mm -hmm. and then you gotta go back and you look at it from a new lens a lens with somebody who's been through a few more experiences and you're like now I have tools that I can actually use to handle the situation I think what I forget I always say this, I forget to remember, which anyway, what I I always forget (laughs) is that when you go through something, you change through it. Like we're changing through it, like you said, evolving. And so that is such a beautiful thing is that I often compare myself to who either who I was or who I think I should be Mm. instead of just realizing who I am and what's Mm -hmm. happening now and how I'm changing through it. Because you're right, healing is mm-hmm. never going to stop. In our minds, we're like, we want to get there. But we kind of just mm-hmm. need to start enjoying the journey and the changes we're going through. Totally. A hundred percent. It's like the present moment 
is really the gift, right? So if we can be in this moment for whatever it is, however we're feeling, whatever our truth is, and be so committed to being fearlessly authentic with ourselves, it will make it that much easier for us to be fearlessly authentic with the world. Not that we, in my opinion, we don't know the world shit. The world doesn't owe us anything either. The only thing that we, I think, owe to anyone is owing to ourselves the allowance of deep compassion, love, and respect, and being fully and unapologetically in integrity in everything that we do, owning when we mess up, making things right when we mess up, saying no when we want to say no, not saying yes just to appease other people. Because I'll tell you what, at the end of the day, I feel like I've been here long enough on this planet now. It always comes back to bite you in the ass when you do the things you don't want to do just to make other people happy. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time saying yes to things I didn't want to do because I didn't want to rock the boat or make people unhappy. And I wanted to help. It doesn't help anybody. Oh, this is so good. I will listen to this over and over until it seeps into my soul. Oftentimes, this can sound like a screw everyone else mindset. And me, as an empath who loves other humans deeply, it comes down to compassion. It's not a screw you or screw everyone else. It is being true to yourself, your soul, and having compassion for you. Having compassion for others and yourself comes so much easier, I've found, through vulnerability. Not that you have to tell everyone everything, but just allowing yourself to say whatever you want to say for yourself, not for the world, to change the world. But I wonder where you learned that. Like, Mm. it seems like after, after you were raped, you went in your car and you sat through it. You didn't push it away. You didn't run from Mm -hmm. it. You sat through it. So how did you know to do that? I didn't know this as a kid, but when I became aware of the personal development world in like a very aware state, I was raised in a personal development family. My grandmother, she was very into Buddhism. She was very into just the study of humanity and loving everybody. And always my whole life, I was raised to say what you mean, say how you feel. Don't be afraid of what other people will think. I mean, my mom, same thing. Like, I had a lot of anger when I was a kid, which I now know where it comes from, but I didn't know it when I was a kid, right? I just had these angry outbursts and then I would be embarrassed about it. I'd be like, I don't know why I'm so mad. And she would always sit me down with loving compassion and just say, honey, what are you feeling right now? And as a kid, I don't think children get asked that enough. You know, it's like, stop acting like that. Stop throwing a tantrum. Stop, 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 stop. But we don't take a moment to acknowledge and honor the fact that these are little humans having a real experience and a life that they don't have a lot of experience with and they don't know how to deal with the emotions. So I was blessed to be in a family that the questions were always, how are you feeling? I would freak out sometimes like, I don't know, I'm just mad. My mom would be like, okay, where do you feel that though? Are you feeling in your heart? Are you feeling it here? Are you feeling it in your tummy? She would always ask these things in a way that like my child brain would go, 
hmm, let me think about that. And my grandmother was the same way, always asking me the questions. My grandmother was very much a why person as well. You know, I would say I would feel something and she'd be like, okay, why do you feel that way? And I wasn't allowed to say, I don't know. If I said, I don't know, she's like, that's a cop out. Let's go. And so I think because I was raised in that way, when it came time for me to have this variance, I was much more prepared from an emotional level than I think a lot of people are. And I really think in many ways that saved me. Yeah, that's huge. Oh my gosh. A Mm -hmm. lot of these conversations lead to a lot of the same places. And this comes up again and again that we have to let kids feel their emotions. And why do we want them to stop? Because it makes us uncomfortable. Like you were speaking out about your experience and then your mom was uncomfortable, but that's because something that was going on inside of her. And then you valued her and honored her and let her feel that. It's impressive that your mom needed to do that. How did she know? She's just so smart. I think because she had my grandmother, right? Because my mother was raised in an environment with my grandmother, who was this lovely human being. And my grandfather was lovely, but he also had two sides to him. He was a raging alcoholic. And when he wasn't drinking, he was like the greatest man on the planet. And I just have lovely memories of him. But when he was drinking, he was horrible. And so my grandmother took those moments where my mom had to see her dad acting in this way. And she used it to kind of fuel the growth and the experience for my mom in a way that was true. Yes, like this is a bad situation, but let's go build a fort and let's talk about it. So there was always this dynamic. And so my mom saw that. And when she had me, she knew that she wanted me to be brought up in this nurturing, loving way that her mother had provided, despite having this chaos from her father. We won't be able to make sure our kids get a perfect life with perfect circumstances. So we need to first sort out our traumas, then help them have the tools to experience their life. Heck, let's all learn it together. I love this crash course in parenting from Cherie's mom and grandmother through Cherie. I think it comes down to allowing all the feelings. So many feelings. One of the things I think Tony Robbins is the one who's best known for this. It's like to have a better life, ask better questions. And you ask questions for a living. And I ask questions for a living as a ghostwriter, right? Like I'm trying to get to the root of the story for my client. And I'm trying to tell their story in their voice, in the way that they would tell it, but in a way that also connects to the reader. So we're used to asking questions, but sometimes it can be hard to reflect that back to ourselves and get uncomfortable enough to start asking ourselves the questions that maybe we don't want to ask ourselves, you know, because we know that it's going to open up something and we don't have time for that. You have to make time for that because the more you allow yourself to sit in the feelings of discomfort, the more that you also as a parent, and I'm an auntie to so many children, (laughs) the more that you allow yourself to sit in that, the more you give, number one, you're able to name the experience for the little ones that don't quite understand yet, but you can talk through all of those things in a way that they begin to feel safe to then share. Cherie doesn't have kids of her own, but her friend has a daughter and is a great example of this. From the time that she was very young, like I don't even know if she was walking at this point, when baby would get upset, she would say, okay, honey, what do we do when we get upset? Now, and she taught her this whole thing. Now, 
when a three-year-old gets upset, she's like, okay, what do you need? And she's like, I need to be alone to breathe. And she'll find her sitting there in her yoga position doing deep breathing. And then she'll come back and she'll say, okay, mama, I'm fine now. She's learned self-regulation because she was taught self-regulation, right? And oftentimes we're not taught that. We're taught, go to your room, you're in timeout. And the kid's going, okay, like if I messed up, tell me what I did so I don't do it again. You just tell me to go to my room. I have toys in my room. My room's awesome. Cool. Like I remember being a kid and I would be told to go to my room sometimes. And I'd be like, much rather be in my room. I can play, I can do all the things. <laughs> or if my mom came in and she's like, I'm going to give you a spanking. And I would hide underneath my bed and I would laugh at her. I was like, you can't reach me. You know, all <laughs> these things because kids make it a game. And the parent then is freaking frustrated. Like, oh my God, you're not getting it. Of course they're not getting it. They're a baby child, right? <laughs> like, like their capacity to understand is vast and we don't give them enough credit. So we dumb things down and talk to them like this little baby that they are from a you know physical standpoint, when really they're so intelligent. If we would just give them the space to be intelligent. We've got to put our oxygen masks on first. Note to self, first, learn and practice self-regulation. Then teach it to my kids. Got it? Got it. Well, unless I'm overwhelmed and my body says sleep, then do that. Ah, okay, this just turned into too much. Let's talk about Cherie's book. You help so many people write their books. When did you decide to write your book? Well, I decided a long time ago to write my book. And then I got caught up with, this is the excuse that I continue to tell myself. I got caught up with writing other people's books and supporting other people and writing their books. And I didn't have the capacity to write my own book because I don't have enough creative space, blah, blah, blah. Right. Really, what was happening was that I wasn't allowing myself the capacity in the space for a couple of reasons. One of which I was like, if I don't do this, then I won't make money, then I won't pay my bills, then I'll be on the street. Like there was this whole story, none of which was true. And then there was the other part of it that said, I don't know who I am without the story. But there was the same part of that on the flip side was, I'm so sick of telling the story. So finally, when I was moving in March of this year, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to close all the chapters. I'm going to open my calendar. I'm only going to take X amount of clients and I'm going to commit to finishing my book and turning it in to the publisher before I move in March. So that was my deadline and that's how I did it. Tell us about your book. The book is called Surviving Silence, A Healing Path to Living Out Loud After Trauma. And it is part memoir, part self-help. And it's very much like, yes, it's my story. But as I've said a million times, it's the story of so many people that are struggling in silence. And it took me three and a half years to speak my truth and the floodgates opened and I never looked back. And you mentioned this prior to as well, like just because you choose to be vulnerable doesn't mean you have to tell the whole world all the things. It's vulnerable in the sense that you allow yourself to be truly who you are in all of you and you allow yourself to love and accept all of the pieces and parts of you that have made you who you are. So this book is very much about my story and the story of all the people that go through their own experience of trauma. There's a portion in there that I also talk about, you know, you asked the question about how do you talk to somebody who's been through something like this, if you don't have experience. And I go through that in some of the book is it's like, here are some things that you can say to somebody who's going through it, you know, because I know that these are well-meaning people really wanting to help. And sometimes 
the best thing that you can do is to ask better questions and give the person the space to figure it out on their own. So my hope is that by me sharing my story, if permission is what people need, here it is. But I allow people the space to come into themselves in a way that feels nourishing and allows them to really not only because we know that we're we're not alone there are other people who have been through it but i want people to read this book and know without a shadow of a doubt that they are held and loved and they are not broken or bad or wrong or damaged because of what they've been through they are simply uh, the version of themselves that now exists is different than it was before So let's learn to love and accept this person and respect this person as they are. And so when people are done reading this book, if they walk away and feel more holy themselves or more accepting of themselves or feel even an inkling of hope that things can get better, like my heart just feels so happy to know that. If you're listening to this on release day, Cherie's book, Surviving Silence was just released this week. Check out the show notes to purchase your very own copy. I just adore Cherie, and this conversation has me feeling all the things. That leaves me with my last question that I ask all of my guests. And the question is, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? You know, I'm a pretty open book across the board. And I share the good, bad, and the ugly. While I am somebody who is an incredibly strong and capable individual, that doesn't mean that I don't need the same level of love and compassion and support that I give to others. And I can't tell you how much it means to me when I get just a random message from a friend that says, I just want to check in on you. How are you doing? Strength looks different for different people. And I think we have been accustomed to putting up this kind of an armor, if you will, as a means of holding ourselves together, really. And I talk about this in my book, too. It's like the difference between boundaries and walls. And it's like, boundaries are healthy, but walls keep people out and they keep us secluded. So beyond my picket fence, I would want people to know that while I've overcome a lot, I'm still just a human having a human experience. And I go through the shit just like everybody else does. And I have moments where I feel like I can't keep going when I'm feeling really sick. And I'm like, I just can't do this anymore. Then I remember that while my life is mine and your life is yours, I don't believe that we're here for ourselves. I really think that we're here for the whole. And I think that if we can continue being our best selves and remaining in integrity and being authentic and true to our experiences in whatever way feels safe for us to share or not, it only allows us to have a more connected society instead of being so disconnected. And I feel like that's the interesting thing about the world we live in today is it's like, we have social media and all of these ways to connect, yet I feel we're more disconnected than we've ever been. And if we would just take a moment to get to know the real person, instead of the filters and the fluff that we see on social media, what a different world we could live in. And it's honestly, it's one of the reasons that I likely won't have children 
is this world breaks my heart. And as an empath and a highly sensitive person, like I don't know that I have that capacity. This has been another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. If you have a story to share or you know someone that does, please reach out to me on my website, Facebook, or Instagram. The link for all these things should be in the show notes. Will, they will be in the show notes. I'm going to put them there for you. And as always, be kind, because you never know what's going on beyond the picket fence. <laughs>